0: I had something weird going on. My internet cut out too. Did oh, you get no. that? Did you see that? Um, I mean, it's fine. Cause we're not using any kind sort of like web upload thing. We're just doing a, but yeah, when I disappeared for a second, it was to go turn on a, a fan. Cause I oh. was like, maybe it's like hot and that's affecting, I don't know.
1: Oh, oh, good. I was so, I was worried. I was like, Oh no, Ben's super pissed that we're changing. The <laughs> <laughs> no, no. he <laughs> couldn't take it anymore. <laughs> <music>
0: Welcome to Season 3, Episode 2 of Acquired, the show about technology acquisitions and IPOs. I'm Ben Gilbert.
1: I'm David Rosenthal.
0: And we are your hosts. Today, we are covering Xiaomi. You may already know a few things about Xiaomi, that they make smartphones, they're from China, and they recently IPO'd. But today we're here to go deeper, understand what the company really is at their core, and talk about the exploding China tech sector. And we have with us today two of the best people in the world to help us dig in on these topics, Hans Tung and Zara Zhang from GGV Capital. So Hans and Zara do a podcast called 996 that you should absolutely check out if this topic is of interest to you at all. I've listened to about half their episodes so far, and it's a fantastic resource for anyone who wants to understand what's going on with Chinese companies, one of our focuses here on Season 3 of Acquired. Hans was an investor in the very first round of Xiaomi and was involved in the initial ideation of the company, a rare and amazing feat to be with a company from conception all the way to IPO. And in another rare feat, Hans is a top venture capitalist both in the United States and in China. He has been ranked six times on the Forbes Midas list and is a true pioneer in venture as one of the first Silicon Valley VCs to move to China full time from 2005 to 2013. Zara is an investment analyst with Hans at GGV, also in their Menlo Park office. She's a former journalist, and it really, really shows on the creation of the 996 podcast. So welcome so much, Hans and Zara. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having us.
2: Thank you for having
1: us. We're going to aspire to uh, at least do half as good as you guys do on a 996 episode. <laughs> on <this>. Oh, please. <laughs> you guys are great. You're too modest. Uh,
0: Before we dive in, I want to take a quick minute with our sponsors of all of Season 3, Silicon Valley Bank. We have with us today Stephen Pipp, a research manager at SVB. Stephen, you and your team just released your quarterly State of the Markets report. I'm told you've done some painstaking research on this one, particularly since it has a spotlight on China. Can you share with our listeners what that's all about and where they can access the report? Absolutely. So Silicon Valley Bank's State of the Markets report took us to China this quarter, particularly to Shenzhen, which we're opening a new branch in later this fall. Shenzhen is unique in how recently developed it has become. Only a couple of centrally controlled state-owned enterprises are headquartered there, compared to Beijing or Shanghai, the names you might know. And yet it churns out almost half of all of the international patent applications coming from China. Some strong headquartered companies there. Um, One you might know, Tencent and Xiaomi as well. Uh, The U.S. section of the report also looks into acquisitions and IPOs uh, from the recent quarter. Most notably, those companies taking a dual track acquired right before listing. If folks want to learn more, they can visit SVB.com and
3: check out the report under our Insights tab.
0: Super interesting stuff and very relevant reading for this episode. Thanks, Stephen. All right. Listeners, you may remember that at the end of season two, we mentioned that if you took our survey, you'd be entered in a raffle to win a pair of AirPods. Well, we have a winner. If you are the lucky winner, we have emailed you to coordinate. And thanks so much to everyone who helped out with the survey. It means an immense amount to us to understand our listeners. So, David, let's dig in on China Tech.
1: Let's dig in. So before we get to the Xiaomi story itself, since we have Zara and Hans with us today, and this is our first China Tech episode, we thought we'd spend a couple minutes just kind of setting the stage on what is going on in China Tech right now, because most of our listeners, we assume, are just reading the headlines. So there there are a couple points that as we were doing our research, we kind of took away as like not obvious things that most people don't realize right now about China and would love to just get your take on it too. So the big ones for us are, I mean, a sort of obviously huge companies are being built there. It's not just BAT, you know, Baidu, Alibaba, Tencent. It's Xiaomi, which we're covering on this episode. It's Didi, which we've also covered in the past. It's Meituan Dianping. It's Toutiao. It's Pinduoduo, which is going uh, public today, for Uh, All these companies are valued over ten billion dollars, and they're not just. US copycats, like these are all super innovative companies that are innovating on their own business models, doing things that nobody's seen anywhere. And that's a big change from a couple of years ago And your guys, you know, take like, when when did this real shift start happening?
3: Right. I uh, first moved to China to uh, do VC full time back in uh, 2005. I think in 2004, uh, Silicon Valley Bank, in addition to being a sponsor for your show, also organized a fantastic tour for a lot of U.S. VCs on Sand Hill Road and other places go to China together. And the uh, pace of change, speed of growth in China was uh, impressive. So a lot of people came back, started to either hire people in-house to send them to China or started to explore having affiliate funds. is on the VC side? Uh, VC from the U.S. side, that's right. And in China for five years prior, uh, since uh, 1999, 2000, there were a lot of VCs that were looking to do investments in China. Um, some even tried in the 90s, and uh, there were few IPOs of internet space in 99, 2000, those, during those two years. The most famous were the portals, Sina, Sohu, and NetEase. And they obviously, after 2000, the market uh, went south, and many companies were not doing well. So there's a lot of doubt as whether it could happen. But as internet penetration take off, both on the PC side via ADSL, and then 5, 10 years later via smartphone. And the landscape for China changed dramatically. That's when you know a lot of these companies, of course, were getting started in you know, Xiaomi
1: in 2010, as we'll see.
3: The first wave were the portals, and then uh, Baidu, Alibaba, Tencent were all started in the mid to late 1990s. The next wave, when you talk about a DD or a... ByteDance, twine Xiaomi, they all happen mostly around 2010 and later. So during that uh, 10 year gap was um, the first five years, 2005 were the tough years, the lean years. And then from 2005, 2010, you see the desktop, PC, the uh, ADSL wave type of companies emerging, start doing well. And then uh, people who gain experience from that wave ends up going after the next uh, trend, the next wave, that was the smartphone wave.
0: It's fascinating. You say mid to late 90s. So it really is for a lot of these companies, the initial Baidu, Alibaba, Tencent, and the portals, it's more akin to Amazon than any of the more recent US tech companies. I mean, this was, they they survived the dot com era rather than being born after it. That gets lost a lot in sort of the US news cycles is that these are 20 plus year old companies.
3: Yes. And a lot of people think that they just came out of nowhere, but they've been around for for a while. <laughs> the, the more recent ones, the Meituan, Hotel slash ByteDance, DD, Pinduoduo, and JD, they they came later. Of that bunch, JD is uh, public about fifty five to sixty billion dollar valuation, and they started in two thousand three, two thousand four timeframe. Everyone else, including Xiaomi, started in twenty ten and later. Yeah,
1: I think one other point to really hit on before we get into Xiaomi is just the pace of execution and company building and growth is like otherworldly compared to Silicon Valley. I mean, Pinduoduo is a great example. It's going public today, going to be valued 15 to $20 billion, raising over a billion dollars in the IPO. The company was founded three years ago.
3: <laughs> right. Uh, I'll start first and then let Zara at her points as well. And the price range for IPO was 16 to $19. Yeah. and then open at $25, 26 mm-hmm. And it's still trading at that, that range between $25, $27 right now as we speak. Uh, the market's going to close in less than an hour. The round was way oversubscribed. It was impressive to see a lot of people looking at it as one of the next big things in China.
2: I think in China, everything is sort of compressed. So I always feel like one year in the US is like five years in China. And you're sort of forced to do things quickly because if you don't, Others will out-compete and out-execute. So if you talk about a bubble in the US, it's probably 20 companies doing the same thing, but a bubble in China is literally hundreds, if not thousands. So how do you stand out um, in that environment? It takes very, very fast execution (laughs) and strong team and just a lot of determination and hard work.
0: This is probably a good time for a quick aside. Zara. why is your show called The 996 Podcast?
2: 996 is the term that refers to the standard work schedule of a lot of Chinese tech companies, which is 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. six days a week. So that's how people work over there. <laughs> and it's, a lot of people are doing that voluntarily because if they don't, they can't keep up with the pace of growth at their companies. And they want to work more because they're just so motivated to make a better life for themselves because the rewards are so great.
3: There's definitely a bias here in a valley, uh, or in the U.S. in general, if someone works too hard, something's wrong, because that means that person is inefficient, uh, does not to work-life balance. But in China, the level of intensity and in drive is quite impressive. Some people compare this to the Japanese or the Koreans in the 80s and 90s. We disagree. Because in the, the other places that we have seen this kind of work ethic, it tend to be in companies that are more conglomerates, bigger, then employees are getting paid on salary, and there's less of the entrepreneurial thing involved. Whereas uh, this time in China. Um, yeah, these all, are all startups. These are all startup. So yeah. they, even some argue only the top 20% of people get, get a lot of options. What we what we're seeing is that the ones who didn't get as much options in the, in the company that they work at, they're willing to go out and catch the next wave by being yeah, founders of the own companies. That's right. So you yeah. see people starting new companies sooner, faster, quicker. And Which is definitely before. not what happened in Korea and Japan. Correct.
1: Yeah. Interesting. Well. That's probably the perfect segue (laughs) into Xiaomi and where everybody there came from. So I'm going to kick off and I'm going to lead the history and facts. uh, But Hans and Zara, jump in because you guys lived this. (laughs) Tell us where we're going wrong. So Xiaomi history starts, as we talked about, April 2010, the beginning of 2010. And there's really a superstar team that comes together, led by a guy named Lei Jun and folks from Google China, the former head of engineering for Google China, Microsoft, Motorola, academia. Kingsoft. Uh, and Kingsoft, King right, of course, where where we'll get into Leijin was the CEO of Kingsoft. But he's the leader, he's the CEO of Xiaomi, and uh, he's a pretty interesting dude. <laughs> right. So he started as an engineer. He was born in, I think, 1969, went to school, did a CS degree in engineering, graduated in two years uh, from Wuhan University, which is a very prestigious engineering program. He starts work as a software engineer. He eventually, after a couple of years, joins Kingsoft. And Kingsoft was like a early software conglomerate, right? They were a software publisher and developer, made everything from games to word processing software, almost like a Microsoft uh, of China, much, much smaller than Microsoft, obviously, but same ambitions. He pretty quickly shoots through the ranks from like entry-level engineer to becoming the CEO <laughs> of the company within, I think, seven or eight years I mean, is that is that common? Like, I would imagine uh, that's pretty special.
3: It is. It definitely is not common. But also, during that time, he's starting working in 92, 93 timeframe. China was going through rapid changes. There was no Internet yet. So software was the uh, was where tech, the action is. And obviously, Microsoft was this, you know, big, impressive company dominating the world from uh, Seattle and Chinese companies look up to Microsoft and the smartest, brightest Chinese tech engineers wanted to build software. That's how Kingsoft got started and Leijun joined quite early as one of the first uh, 10 employees. Uh, oh, wow, in, 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 I thought
1: he was already a more established company when he when he joined. So he was pretty early.
3: Yeah, he was pretty early. Yeah. And then the, the company back then, the angel investor had most of the shares. The CEO had a lot less than people like Leijun joining didn't get much at all. But he uh, persevered. He ends up uh, become the CEO of the company. And in that process, the first 17 years I was, he was there, before he took the company public, the company evolved from a software company to a security company to a, a gaming company. And throughout the whole cycle, he learned how hard it was not to have options as a, as a tool to get people to change and evolve a few times in order to find a better way to grow. During that time, he also uh, came up with the idea to do e-commerce and spent off a team to do what it's called JoYo and it was later sold to amazon and become amazon china ah wow that's pretty awesome so <laughs> he was uh, clearly inspired by <laughs> uh silicon valley early on yeah and um, one of the pioneers in china the in internet space to to sort of evolve from software into yeah. internet go from mm-hmm. microsoft to google to you know amazon to now today. show me yeah it's like the pace of you know, these waves happen <laughs> extremely Transition quickly, like extremely, yeah, extremely, <laughs> extremely quickly. That's right. Um, we actually did analysis. We, co- we look at the top 10 highest market cap companies in the world that's publicly traded. And 10 years ago in 2008, most of them were not tech most of them were oil and gas companies, wireless carriers or financial institutions. Uh, Microsoft was the only two tech company amongst top 10 in the world back then. These days, it's the banks plus uh, Alibaba and Tencent in China. So you see seven of the top 10 are tech companies, many of them are internet-focused companies, and then um, the market cap changed dramatically.
0: And Hans, to to pile onto that, so not only are the most valuable companies tech companies now, the ones that have performed the best in recent years are also tech companies. And I saw this incredible stat this morning that is the FANG stocks, Facebook, Amazon, Apple, Netflix, and Google, were single-handedly responsible for the S&P 500 being positive for the first half of 2018. If if you take those stocks out of the S&P 500, it was actually down uh, 7 tenths of a percent which is insane to think about. This is what we're
3: seeing in the US. The gap is even wider Inside. in developing countries, where the offline world is even less efficient than the offline world here in the US. So you look at Alibaba, GGB was already investing in Alibaba. Uh, we invested in uh, Alibaba in 2003. Valuation was a, quote unquote, very expensive $180 million. Uh, that's 2003. 15 years later. It's, that's million it's with an
1: ha- M, not a With a an M,
3: not no, right. <laughs> and 15 years later, it's half a trillion, yeah. uh, $500 billion. And during that same span, Google actually grew by less than 10x, Alibaba's 1,000x. That's the thing we see that in developing countries worldwide, we will see the impact of tech, internet, play an even bigger role than it has done in the U.S.
1: Before all the internet companies became so big in China. I mean, the big Chinese companies were the state-owned enterprises, right? And it seems like now, you know, like you were saying earlier, everybody either wants to work for uh, these big internet companies or
3: go be an entrepreneur themselves. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a big change. Even t- five, 10 years ago, we see a lot of people come out and want to have a good job that's safe, often with the government institutions or state-owned enterprises. These days, you see a lot more people willing to work in internet companies, technologies, because they know the growth is a lot faster. And the chance for a career advancement is a
1: lot better. So, Lei Jun, of course, being prime example. Uh, so, he's now CEO of Kingsoft. We're in the mid 2000s, and he makes kind of a surprise decision, or at least it seems in the researching, like a surprise decision. At the end of 2007, he retires from Kingsoft right. as CEO. He eventually would come back, and I believe he's now chairman again. But he retires day to day as CEO, takes a step back, but he doesn't really stop. He starts becoming a very prolific angel investor. Correct. And you were working with him a bunch during this time, right? Yes. You've talked about, and um, he's talked about too that there were there were kind of three main trends that he saw at this moment in time that he thought were going to create a lot of new companies in the future. And that was the rise of social, the rise of e-commerce particularly, and particularly in China because there wasn't as much offline commerce developed. And then, of course, the coming wave of mobile, which was a huge global trend as well. How did you first end up getting connected with him and, and start investing with him as he's doing all this angel investing?
3: I, I didn't know he was an active angel investor. He didn't publicize it. I was looking for companies to invest in the online gaming space, because you can see gaming take off, but the chance of each, any of the, any particular game do well is quite high. So we're looking for ways to invest in a gaming space that we're selling uh, shovels that can be the, the arms dealer. We'll look at media, we look at tools, look at variety of, of ways to feed into the gaming market. One of the company uh, eventually become a company called YY and also listed yeah. in uh, on, on NASDAQ and GDB's investor in it, I came across this and met a CEO, got to know David uh, quite well. And David introduced me to his angel investor and that was Ladrin. So that's how I got intro to Ladrin. The first thing he said to me was that, you know, he, he thought a lot about what he did for the 17 years at uh, Kingsaw and realized that in order to do well, one needs to capture the right trend that, that has a chance to take off. And over the next 10 years, he's most bullish on these three trends, commerce, social, and mobile. It happened to be the same thesis I had, except that he obviously I've thought about this deeper and for <laughs> far longer than, than, than I have. So it's it's great to meet someone who feels the same way, but also has the operational experience to be helpful to yeah. the founders that he backs. Yeah,
1: and this whole concept of trends is super important in China tech in a way that it's is different from the U.S. Yes. Like In the U.S., what's prized you know, in Silicon Valley is like these disruptive innovations that no one sees coming. Like everybody right. thinks that Facebook is a toy or, you know, Instagram's a toy. Right. Nobody takes it seriously. Right. And then it disrupts everything. In China, it seems like it's much more about like there are these big trends. Let's capitalize on the trends. Right. Like what, What's behind
3: that? It is very interesting. Uh, you know, having gone to Stanford, it's always thinking about the next big idea or to do something disruptive. What rule can we, can we break this time? Do something that's shocking and something that's fun and kind of rebellious. In, in China, it's such a, it's so much about nation building. So that in order to catch up and do well, the country needs to push a certain agenda or mm. promote certain, certain sectors to do better in order to build a more prosperous nation. So there are trends that you can capture. So people look at, you know, in order for the country to be more efficient, internet will need to play a role because it's a great way for someone in Beijing to know what's going on in other parts of the country and have people tell you what's happening for, on the internet. It feeds you data in a way you cannot do it on your own. So there are things that's happening in China. If you look at it, it goes, hmm, I can see how it fits to what's going on from a country development standpoint. So this trend has better chance of taking off and will not be as regulated by the government.
0: There's sort of two things at play there. One is an advantage to a more centralized, even if not sort of governmentally centralized, but culturally centralized group of people. In the US, everyone's running around sort of doing Doing their own thing trying to create trying to disrupt trying to find a little edge wherever they can and in china where there's a more unified sense of we all need to do this to be strong together you have sort of more adherence to trends
3: right but if you go even deeper the stuff that's happening in the us is also trend dependent yeah yeah you <laughs> just we just don't think of that way in the us <laughs> yeah. like why why should pc take off why, why shouldn't we just live, continue living in the mini computer world or the mainframe world? Because distributing that power to the edges makes sense. It makes everyone more efficient. It's better for the country if everyone has a PC next to it so they can do stuff, they can be more productive. But we never describe that trend in that context. It's always like, oh, it, it, it's about freedom, it's giving you empower everyone. So, what do you want to think from an empower standpoint of the individual, which is the Western way of thinking, or the Eastern way of thinking, you make the country more efficient? The result is exactly the same.
0: (laughs) Do some of these trends that are sort of being identified as we must be strong in this area, such as mobile or such as social, have they already been sort of solidified two to three years more in Western markets as like it was the toy? It was maybe disruptive, but not a real market yet. Now we can see it's a market and we know we have to win there. It's it's not fast following because the business models are tremendously different and the way that it interplays and the culture is different. But there's sort of demonstrated sort of the technology can work at scale. Notion. Well, for example,
3: when Facebook started to show up, like you said, some people, a lot of folks in the U.S. view that as toy. Um, you know how a has to treat this seriously. It it doesn't seem like it's something that can that can last. But uh, someone like in China. Or Wang Xing, who is the founder of Meituan, see it in China, says that is interesting. I think that's going to be a big trend, because it's in, in the Chinese context, you can see that it's a way for people to uh, freely express what they're thinking and uh, get less of a pushback from the government, at least initially. So there are reasons why this could take off in China, but it has to be modified, it has to be localized, this model has to be different. But there's something there that you, you, that you, you can look at and go, hmm, I think this can be big. But you know, I know how to make that big. So it's a combination of, you can call it a fast following or you call it a micro innovations, adding stuff that has a C. May not have you have invented a C yourself, but you see that this could be something quite big and be quite different than the original intent. So I think stuff in the US is an amazing place, both in Silicon Valley and New York, where you see a lot of new things happening, but most people treat it as a toy. Yeah, yeah.
2: I think it's not so much about who's copying who, but more taking the world as your. Classroom and learning from everyone. I think Chinese entrepreneurs are especially eager to learn from Western entrepreneurs, and maybe not the same can be said the other way around. So if you read, <laughs> although it should it's be, changing. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and it's changing. If, it's changing, it's if changing, I read right? uh, tech news in Chinese, like the major, like the tech crunch equivalents in China, over half of the news there is about the fans in the U.S. Whereas I read um, Bloomberg, Wall Street Journal, whatever here, maybe only five to ten percent of. The news mm. is about Chinese companies. It's a lot of asymmetry in terms yeah. of uh, interest. And Chinese entrepreneurs are very eager to come to Silicon Valley, meet everyone, learn what's working, and take it home. Not copycat, yeah. but adapted to the local market because it takes a deep knowledge of what's going on in China to make a product work.
3: When you look at Steve Jobs. He didn't invent graphic user interface. Right. He didn't invent object-oriented programming. But when he sees uh, that, he says, "Oh, that is going to be huge!" And here's the reason how, right? Yeah. Yeah.
0: Let's not overcredit the amazing historical American innovators with being (laughs) the true original inventors of things either. All
1: right. So back to the Xiaomi story. Lei Jun. It's 2009. He's left Kingsoft over a year ago at this point, and he starts jamming with one of the people who would become one of his co-founders at Xiaomi, Lin Bin, who's the head of Google's China engineering division. Now, remember, this is going to become really important in a minute. Google does not operate in China. You cannot access Google services, search, maps, YouTube, whatever in China. However, the mobile and smartphone market is starting to rise. And it's pretty clear at this point that Android is going to be Likely the dominant operating system in the whole world, including China. But there's this gap where there is no Google, yet there is Android in China. So they start jamming on this. They realize this opportunity. And even that was it was still a little bit of
3: a leap. At the time, Nokia was it's, it's, huge. slightly slightly different. I think Google was operating in China, and about close to 20% of the market was Google. So Android has come out, but it's very early. Yeah. Um, back then, only HTC phones have done well, Samsung phones have not. Hmm. So it wasn't that clear that Android can beat iPhone, because in the early days, iPhone was still offered a better integrated experience. So the discussion that Lei Jun and Lin Bing had was that, is it possible to build a phone using Android kernel ah. that can offer a better integrated experience by owning both a hardware and a software piece? So that wasn't that obvious, but I'm glad you yeah. picked that out. It wasn't obvious to many, many other people that it wasn't a predetermined thing that uh, someone should do hardware and then someone else should do, Google should do Android. And marrying the two together is sufficient to offer superior experience. That wasn't obvious back then because it was so early in the cycle.
0: Right. And that's the, you know, famous knock on the whole Android experience is that the software and the hardware are not built to be tightly coupled together. And for a company like Xiaomi that is so incredibly focused on the user experience to, you know, in an, an, an Apple-like way, you know, you could see how that would be an enormous sort of leap at the beginning of, you know, can we do this? Can we actually create an iPhone-like experience using this decoupled hardware-software combination?
3: Yeah. And that was the key number one challenge. And a lot of people back in China even then didn't think that was possible because no hardware company in a phone-related space has ever become successful, uh, starting from scratch. Every player we can think of kind of evolved and added the phone element on top of the infrastructure business that they were already in. So it was incredibly risky for anyone to try to make this work.
1: Now, they decided to start the company along with uh, seven other co-founders, I believe. Seven or eight other co-founders. Immediately raised
3: $41 million at a $250 million valuation. It happened in two tranches. <laughs> the, the first time, it was um, roughly around $20 million pre, okay, And the lead investor was uh, Richard Liu at Morningside. At Morningside, and, right? and I gave him a lot of credit for having the guts uh, to do that. Both he and I have known other for a long time. So three, four people and a crazy idea, $20 million valuation. And I remember someone told told me back then, who's who's very smart and very experienced, Google's first round, after having a product that was out there, people were using it, it was 70 million pre. Yeah. So having no, no product, <laughs> nothing, no, not even business plan, 20 million pre is, the valuation is not not cheap. But if you believe in him and the team and what he's trying to do, you will bet. The challenge came uh, one run later, that was only months after the first round was done, and that was at 150 it's um, million. It's years in China time. It, it, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> and, and the valuation became 150 million pre. And they were uh, maybe 50,000 users of MIUI, the operating system yep. based on the Android kernel that Xiaomi had. And then um, you know both Richard and I decided to co lead that round together to do this. Only months later, before they actually had a first party to launch the phone, the valuation jumped up to a billion post. And remember, this is
1: 2010 uh, this in is 2010, China. China. This and, is not and, and 2018 in Silicon th- th- Valley. <laughs> that's right.
3: By the time he hits a billion dollar valuation, it was already 2011. And then I give um, Lei Jun and then Tucker Shongwei, also Richard uh, Morningside, a lot of credit for co leading that round between Xun Wei and Morningside. So there were, there were a number of people that had the guts. Um, not many, but a number of people had the guts to lead each round and step up with meaningful money at stake at that yeah. time. And so if you didn't think that the, 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 the team can pull off that vision, it's uh, everyone who passed on it, I think is extremely logical and reasonable. <laughs> and I I we never fault them for for doing that because it's crazy.
0: It's always that way, Hans, but that's not how you drive returns. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> Inventor,
3: uh, it, it, you have to somehow figure out a way to bet systematically and take Enough risk to find those outliers.
1: So one thing I want to pick up on that I think is super important understanding what's going on at this time, Hans, you mentioned MIUI, which is the, it's a skin on the Android kernel that the company develops during this time before they have their own phone. Let's talk a little bit about that. So there was a company, I think it's bankrupt now, but there was a a product and a company here in the US called Cyanogen, Hmm. Cyanogen CyanogenMod. There was a great engineer up in Seattle, actually, who had hacked android and basically this is very very early days of android yep. and created this skin on top of it not a full replacement of yep. the linux-based operating system yep. but a new ui yep. and that was cyanogen uh ends up they start a company around that ends up getting backed by Andreessen and benchmark yep. uh, doesn't work out but so that's going on and that essentially is the same thing that xiaomi does for UI, mm-hmm. and that's what UI is mm-hmm. uh, how did that all come together? Did they see Cyanogen and see that this is possible? Uh, was it
3: developed independently?
1: Because like, it happened pretty fast.
3: Right. Like, there was something that was discussed in Xiaomi early on. But I think the Chinese entrepreneurs know that their executions was far better. Yeah. So they didn't have to take away anything from what the other countries and teams were doing. And when, it was all open source. Too. It's all open source. Yeah. So once you, you know what is potentially possible, even though it's not proven yet. Yeah. Do you think you can execute it better yeah. and figure out a way to make it work in the ways other can't? Well
1: also the just the you know in China, yet with this opportunity, I mean it's pretty amazing what Jun and the Xiaomi team does. They create me UI. There's right. no phone yet. They release it so that anybody with an Android phone can install that's it right. on their phone. It was open sourced, that's and right. it, it really takes off, and it gets these super hyper engaged users on product forums, and that's kind of the the root
3: of the me fans that start, they, that which we'll get into in a minute. Like Zara mentioned on six. I remember going to visit Li Jing and Lin Bin and the rest of the team in 2010. Actually, Lin Bin is not there; he was still at Google at that at that time. And then uh, it would be at around midnight, and there would still be people in front of me <laughs> waiting to talk to drink. You realize that you know they figure out a way to combine the best of the knowledge that they 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 picked up while they work in the bigger companies, yet they retain the nimbleness and the drive of a startup. And having the two culture be able to mesh together, it wasn't easy, but they made that work. They update um, UI every single week. Yeah. No one has ever done that anywhere else in the world. They update that every single week. So if you are a fan. Of open source software, and you like Android, you can't help but realize that this team out the of middle of nowhere in Beijing was doing something revolutionary. Yeah, yeah, I wrote in my notes. It's almost a joke, you know. We talked about
1: in the Tesla episode on our last episode about the Tesla being the iPhone of cars because you know it's a computer, you can That's upgrade right. it, they ship over the air updates. It's almost like MIUI is the iPhone of iPhones. Like you know, if you have Android or you have stock Android or you have iOS, you're getting yearly updates. But the Xiaomi team, like you said, is shipping major updates every single
3: week, week to this new skin that they've developed. Right. It's, and people responded. If- a lot of people say this is what Android should be doing, but yeah. not doing – you're doing it. So I know in the U.S. we value a lot on idea origination. We place a premium on that. And there, there's, there's nothing wrong with doing that. But I think we also need to give people enough credit to take an idea and you make do whatever it takes to make that work. That's much harder and it takes a lot more discipline and a grind for a longer period of time. And so but both both have value. Yeah. What I think it's just super well illustrated here
1: between, you know, Android, which is still on, Core Android, still on an annual release cycle. Maybe a little faster now, but not much. You know, and Cyanogen, of course, is great. And they're like, you know, working on stuff too,
3: but not moving at anywhere near the same pace that Xiaomi is. No. So this is, I when I look at this. This is not government influence. It's not like somebody give uh, Xiaomi extra salary or subsidy or grant to ask them to move faster. It's uh, completely from within. This is why I love tech. uh, It's true meritocracy.
0: So Hans, the the original business plan was to... Build amazing phones at reasonable prices and sell them over e-commerce. What was the decision like when deciding how to enter the market around, should we build a phone first or should we make a skin of Android first?
3: Early on, they had an the inkling that to make it work, what is now called the triangular model, that you need to have to do three things well. You gotta be able to do the skin and make that extremely valuable so people want it more so than the Android software originally. So that's number one. Number two, you gotta be able to have a hardware that that when it's uh, quote unquote integrated with the software it can offer superior experience than a decoupled solution that was out there and that was more more a dominant form of alternatives. And then number three, you gotta be able to have internet services that you can roll mm-hmm. out to create some kind of networking effects, create some kind of moat. That and makes there's it, the opportunity for that because there's no entrenched you know Google search or Google maps i mean there's Baidu, of course then. but that's yeah. right so you, you figure out how to do all three things well is not easy but they identified early on that was a, a way to, to, to compete but and and potentially win and for for him he also realized that none of the original team members had hardware True hardware experience, having shipped a lot of phones. So, to focus on getting stuff right and getting user feedback to get validation on this triangle model co work, they have to start with a skin with a, with UI first ah, to make that. Because that's what that they had on the team. Be, be, before before they can try. And also, it's, it's less capital intensive. To build yeah. a phone, you gotta pay for all the IP and which they did. You gotta pay uh, Qualcomm, which is expensive, you gotta pay a uh, content Manufacturer three months in events, if yeah. not longer. It's not installments. You have to pay all of the upfront because <laughs> they need to make sure that as a startup you're gonna be around. So it's hugely capital intensive yeah. to to build a phone. So before they can prove they can build a phone, they gotta make sure they can do a mug. Well, it's first. interesting.
1: So in a lot of ways, I think those constraints end up driving Xiaomi's next big innovation, which evolves into, you know, hunger marketing and the e-commerce model. I assume it's because they didn't have enough capital, even as well capitalized as they were, Mm -hmm. to place orders for parts and get phones assembled at the scale that a Samsung is. Mm -hmm. There were only limited runs Mm -hmm. and there was such demand Mm -hmm. and so they evolved that into this hunger marketing model where Mm -hmm. now every Tuesday at noon, right, there is a limited uh, amount of supply of Xiaomi phones that come available and you have to lock log on and buy it right
3: at noon. <laughs> right. A lot, a lot of people criticize them for the hunger marketing strategy, but it was born out of necessity. Yeah. Lee Jin told told uh, Li Wanqiang head of uh, uh, marketing sales back then, that you have to figure a way to make it work. And by the way, you have <laughs> nothing, no money, no budget to work with. And so I remember one of the marketing campaigns that came up with was uh, a campaign that just share the phones that you have ever used in your life and talk about what you like and not like about them. So it was a way for true fans to show off. their Technology and their status as an experienced user. Daehyun was the first who did that, and he showcased like the fifty phones that he ever used. And there were about five hundred sixty thousand people on their own decided to participate and share wow. what, what the phones they have used in their life. Half a million people. Half <laughs> a million people. So not spending any money at all. Half a million people within a few weeks time frame participating in a campaign. And that's when I know even before they launched the phone that. There is a market there. <laughs> Leijing was right that people feel that their voices are being heard. They want a platform, a brand that listen to them and be willing to make changes quickly based on their input. So that's a winning strategy that the hardware guys don't know. And the internet guys are not going to touch hardware. So if you can figure out these gaps of capability understanding amongst different disciplines, you can build something that's the best of everything.
0: Yeah. And to put a pretty extreme point on that, the point that Hans is making about taking community feedback, lots of companies talk about, oh, we listen to our users and like, oh, we go and interview them and we have empathy for them. Xiaomi literally has a forum that is a thing that they built in-house where anybody who uses a Xiaomi phone can request a feature, and it works like Reddit, and there's upvoting and downvoting, and the community basically says, at any given time, this is the most important thing to us that's not currently in the product, and when they roll out stuff every week, they look directly to that. I think that lots of companies have tried to do things like this, but to be able to actually successfully execute and have their product planning run on this intense heartbeat from the community is extremely unique
2: and Xiaomi engineers are and product managers are are required to spend time in that forum wow. it's part of their job like they have to spend hours there per week.
3: And answer
1: questions. And
2: answer yeah. questions and be engaged themselves. <laughs> Could you
3: imagine if Google did that? Like <laughs> so, They should. <laughs> yeah. Again, there's no government support. There's no the government subsidy. There's no government grant. Nothing. It's purely based on execution. You care. The agent yeah. says, you know, treat your customers as if you're treating fixing phones for your friends. Your friends come to you and say, hey, your phone's not working. <laughs> you're going to bust your ass to make sure that their needs are taken care of. So that, that's what he tried to do to get his colleagues to react and, and serve the customers better.
0: So one other point I want to make for listeners, taking a step back, if you look at the founding team and you look at some of the original investment theses, Hans, that you've talked about and that Lee Jun has talked about in, in how he started the company, the notion was we're going to manufacture these phones. They're going to be, you know, world-class hardware. It's going to be a great experience. We're going to do e-commerce. We're going to sell them online, which is fairly unique at this time. So we need people that are amazing at e-commerce because that's blowing up in China and that's the strategy for selling these things. I and mean, they had that on the team. They had, you know, people who have built world-class services and run large software companies. But if you look at the things they had and didn't, they had nobody really in hardware and nobody in manufacturing. Think about, you know, anybody out there right now, you and your friend sitting around saying, let's start a company. And you're like, oh, I think we should start like a SaaS company. Or maybe like we could sell some things on the internet. But thinking like, I'm going to start a hardware company and learn how to manufacture that at scale. To me, the one of the most impressive things about Xiaomi's you know, evolution over time, is that they actually did figure out that competency. For Hans, I have, I have a question for you. Is that unique to China that they could do that because they're actually manufactured there and because, you know, there's so much competency around, uh, you know, actual building of physical things?
3: Once Lin Bing joined full-time, both he and Lei Jing together, they spent a lot of time and effort to interview everybody they know who ever made phones for Motorola, and Nokia, mm. and other major brands in China. Which were companies that were dying at this point in time. Yeah. Well, they're, they're, no, 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 to be fair, or, Motorola, not quite Mo- yet, Mo- Motorola and Nokia were doing well in China. But not in the beginning. That's right. right, but some of them were frustrated for the fact that these companies are moving much slower than smartphones. They weren't adopting yeah. smartphones quickly. Yeah. They were not willing to use Android as their operating system. They were pushing their own, right. as you recall. So oh, these no uh, had that awful. That's that's right. System. That's exactly oh. right. The burning that's, that's, platform. You got it. Yes. <laughs> and and so there were people who were frustrated at these big firms that are sort of want to come out and put their vision to the test and Leijing was uh, Leijing was and Beijing the first to talk to them and be able to get one of them to, uh, uh, to join cool. them to do this. It's not easy because again, most uh, people in these big companies haven't tasted uh, value of uh, options. They haven't gone through an IPO themselves. Yeah. So they don't, it's harder to leave a big company that has a prestigious job to join a no-name startup that just had a bunch of uh, UI users. Well, to run through quickly what happens, I mean, short story,
1: it works. <laughs> 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 they uh, they released the first phone, the Mi One handset, at the end of 2011. August uh, 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 16, 2011. Wow. I'll never forget that. I <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah.
1: And I know, Hans, you've talked about this. I know you'll never forget it. More than 300,000 pre-orders in the first two days, right? for yeah. this phone from oh, oh, this company that like nobody's ever heard of before, uh, that has like, a skin.
3: Within the first day, of 340000 Within the first couple <laughs> of days, $460,000. Oh, oh, it was mind-boggling. And at the at the party, uh, lunch party, 2,000 people showed up. And <laughs> when the agent said the phone, at the end of his present presentation, he said the phone cost you know nineteen ninety nine RMB, which roughly translates to $310 US. Everybody in the audience stood up and applauded. And that's when I know, okay, my job is saved. I yeah. did not make a mistake <laughs> for doing crazy things. Again, a lot of kudos to Leijin and Tuck and Richard for all having the guts to put money where your mouth is. And the, 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 the Xiaomi team is amazing. A lot of people don't know this, but in a series B that the one the I, I led, a lot of employees of Xiaomi put their personal money into the company. Wow. So just make sure wow. that if you want to do this, you have the option of doing so. No pressure and no need, it's not obligation. But all those folks, 56 of them who did, are all very, very well off right now.
1: Wow. That's awesome. I wish more more companies should do that.
0: <laughs> <laughs> How does that work mechanically? Do they sort of buy in? Uh, they, 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 get all, they all shares? put money
3: into a SPV, and SPV show up on the cap table as an investor. And they get preferred shares. They get preferred shares. Wow. They all got preferred shares. Wow. Right. That's right.
0: More companies broadly should do that. That's awesome.
1: Yeah. Well, okay. So <laughs> things are going well. The next year, the Me Too comes out. Yeah. They sell just under 20 million of those phones, which again, this is now a three-year-old startup. Yeah. Amazing. Has <laughs> made, you know, not the Linux kernel, the Android kernel, but like a full operating system on top of it. Two phones, bunch of services plugged into those phones yeah. and sold 20 million of them. Pretty impressive. Then... Also in 2013, they come out with their first non-phone product mm-hmm. that, that Xiaomi made and mm-hmm. still makes a TV, That's a right. smart, smart TV. TV. How did the strategy develop to go from that, you know, like Apple like makes a few products, they yep. make great hardware. But Xiaomi has taken this other approach, this ecosystem approach where... Well, I'll let Hans describe it, but, you know, long story short, all these scooters that you're riding, there's one in their office right, right. now, <laughs> are, <laughs> are Xiaomi-branded scooters right. made by ecosystem companies. So Online how did bot. that That's strategy
3: right. get developed? Again, Le- Leijing thought ahead. And I think his uh, experience as an operator, entrepreneur, as well as a angel investor was super helpful. He understood that for Xiaomi to be great, it can't just be on the, being a phone company. He has to buy multiple products. But if you ever try to assemble everybody in-house to do this, not many products in-house can be as big as the phone business. Yep. So you're not going to have people who are going to do the greatest work doing uh, smart devices other than a phone and maybe a, maybe a TV. So he knew that he needed to figure out to incentivize people outside of Xiaomi to do this. And so he's willing to become an investor in their companies, minority, never control, minority for the most part, and then um, be able to lend the Xiaomi brand to them and share gross profit on top of that, and then open up the Xiaomi e-commerce platform to allow these devices to be sold on Xiaomi and then eventually it's to to store it when the Amazon store down the road, and then um, having the um, uh, supply chain be willing, you know how hard it was for him as a startup to gain the trust of supply chain to manufacture stuff for him, even after they have a great design. So he wants to make sure that Xiaomi brand can help these startups to get access to supply chain to manufacture.
1: It's incredible for listeners who, you know, probably aren't familiar with this. I mean, the first big ecosystem product that's a hit is the air purifier right made by a separate company that xiaomi has invested in branded xiaomi sold mm-hmm. through all of xiaomi's distribution channels mm-hmm. but a completely separate company that makes it mm-hmm. and it becomes a massive hit And now there's been so many other products everything from the banks, all the scooters uh, again branded xiaomi scooters made yeah. by a company called ninebot which yeah. is a separate company yeah.
3: anything you can imagine it's pretty incredible they, they have uh, over 80 products now designed and then by supply chain from uh, over 100 companies
0: only three of them, I think, are full-stack Xiaomi. That's the phone, the TV, and the laptop. That's
3: right. Only three are. And the, uh, f- the smart TV one is also interesting. The founder or the, the head of the business right now is Wang Chuan, Richard Wong, and someone that Adrian has known for a long time. He started off wanting to do something that's more of a Kindle of China for lack of a better term and more reading device that has an integrated hardware software experience. And I was actually a, a small personal investor in that in that company, but it was harder to make that work in China, just just a different market. Leijing and he actually invested in Xiaomi early on as a personal investor himself. So he and Leijing stayed close and then eventually decided that if he joined Xiaomi full time, then the team he built at Kindle can come in and ends up build smart TV. Mm, and uh, cool. And so, without him joining, it may, it may have taken a while for Xiaomi to figure out who's going to drive the next product. The next product, and, yeah. and the Xiaomi ecosystem only happened after Smart TV becomes a uh, something that can be a successful example, hmm. a study for others.
0: All right. So this is a great part of the show because this is where we're really starting to tease out what is Xiaomi as a business and how is it different? Because I think that a lot of people at first blush say, oh, maybe it's like the next Apple. They're making smartphones. Everybody's using them. They're doing a lot of the software themselves. And the question about Apple is always, can they have another iPhone? And most people think no that they'll never have a product at that scale that's that profitable again. And uh, you know what have they done about it? They've come out with the watch that's doing well. They, they have some of these other products that will never be as big as the iPhone. And the approach that Xiaomi took to that is, well, we have all these competencies and we could sort of platformize those competencies in a very Amazon-like way. So the way that Amazon opened up AWS to other people to sort of start a new business line, Xiaomi is sort of doing that same thing with their manufacturing, with their supply chain, with their branding, with their e-commerce, but rather than, you know, silently running on AWS in the background, a lot of these products are actually now Xiaomi products. And so not only... It'd be
1: like uh, Airbnb by, you know, by Amazon, <laughs> which in <laughs> some sense it is, right? It runs on AWS. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, but it's just a really fascinating strategic move that we just don't really see in, in the U.S.
3: Right. Jing has always been impressed by a Muji Uniqlo in Japan. Also Costco in the US, obviously Amazon as well, since he sold his second startup, Joyo, to uh, to Amazon. So he knew that there's more things that are rising middle class in developing country like China will want to buy beyond the phone. So how to take advantage of that and when someone trusts the brand for one product category, give them more products that they will want. And how can you do that at a world-class design for every single product but it make the price much more affordable for the mass market, the, the rising middle class in these countries. The goal all along was not just to do a phone, but how to do more than phone it was much bigger of a challenge and question. And I think uh, over time, he figured out the ecosystem approach, making uh, the product leader for each product a true founder and entrepreneur yeah. was the best solution. The everything store. <laughs> That's right.
2: I think he's mentioned before that his goal for Xiaomi is really to allow customers to be able to shop in their store with their eyes closed. So they, they can buy anything <laughs> they want and trust yeah. that it will be of high quality and they will like the product. So it doesn't take, a, like, if you like the brand, you're going to like whatever yeah. it makes. So yeah. whatever Xiaomi makes, I will buy it. So yeah. that's their goal. Right?
3: Right. That's and the so beauty cool. the beauty is that when you have the model like that, then the frequency of visits per store or per shop is much higher. Yeah. Much much higher, right? Yeah. How, how often do you replace the phone? At best, six how months. How often do you go to the Apple Store? Even though it's an amazing Wi-Fi. store, yeah. right? You don't need to go there that often. But the Xiaomi store becomes a place that people just go love to go check out every couple of weeks because yeah. uh, there's always something new from one of the ecosystem companies.
0: It's like Brookstone, but all the things are super useful. <laughs>
3: <laughs> <laughs> I was going to talk about Hugo Barra here. I'll, I'll just mention him. Uh, Hugo right. Barra. is in, a... In profound, I will add that selling the phone over internet was not easy, even though e-commerce in China was doing well back in 2010, 2011. But uh, Google had tried to sell their first, its first the phone Nexus. online. Yeah, the first Nexus, Nexus, that's right. Yeah. Great phone, but it was just hard to sell on the internet. Hard. People yep. just like, you know, why? I'm used to buying it offline. So it was not obvious that that can work. If they, joined and the team did not do Mi UI well, did not have a lot of users who would like Mi UI already, then the price point wasn't that competitive. You cannot start a bus. I remember after the, the lunch party, I went to a barber shop to get my haircut. And uh, I whip out the Mi phone using it. And my barber was asking me what I was because she has never seen it before. And she asked around, no one else has seen it, after I said it's Xiaomi. But this one guy in, in the barbershop, one, one of the barbers who is probably the most tech savvy of the bunch. And he knew Xiaomi phone because he, he you know, <laughs> follows what's cool and hot yeah. online. So he said, oh, this is the best phone right now. It's so cheap, but it's world-class. Oh, the, the chip is the best Qualcomm chip you can find right now Snapdragon. And it is amazing. When Sue say that, the other six people all turn their heads, they all congregate next to me, want to check out the phone, and say, Oh my god, it's only nineteen ninety nine RMB, it's so cheap, it looks so good. Immediately the fan, me fan, Turn the other six um, folks in the in the, in the barbershop because someone who wants to buy Xiaomi phone, wow. and, that, yeah. the, and then you constantly play it, and you are like, "Can I give you more money, please?" <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the cost of that promotion is zero. No government subsidies needed. No yeah, government grants wow. needed. But just by out thinking, out executing, you become a phenomenon in itself. So.
0: Why not sell through channel? So, you know, in the US until, you know, the iPhone, everyone's going to the AT&T store and the Verizon store to buy their thing. Is it a gross margin problem? Is it right. a... Right.
3: Apple's in a different position. Apple can doesn't have to give away as much to the channel. All the other phone companies do. And if you look at a marketing cost and sales costs, even for Apple, for most phone companies, it ends up being somewhere between 30 to 40% of sales. So if you look, at Apple's gross margin on iPhones roughly a bit over 50 two-thirds if not three-quarters of that of sales marketing oh, wow. and then what's left okay. is just operating overhead yeah. so those are the three biggest cost drivers right obviously you have components all that stuff in there too but beyond that it's ex- an expensive item and for phone company that's not a iphone then you have to give away more to the channel right. as well channel, yeah. and it's just not as uh, and you don't get feedback as quickly because people cannot tell you the problems uh, themselves so Doing it over the internet makes it a lot more efficient if you're going to make it work because the feedback is immediate, as you know. Yeah.
1: I mentioned Hugo Berra. Hugo was a very famous, celebrated Google executive. At this point, Andy Rubin has now left Google. Andy Rubin, of course, being the founder of Android, as we've covered. Uh, Hugo is basically running Android within Google. He's head of, head of product for Android. Huge announcement. Xiaomi recruits Hugo to move from Mountain View to Beijing and join... Xiaomi, and even more curious, he's not going to head product or software, he's going to head international. And this becomes a huge, huge move for Xiaomi. And and really under Hugo's leadership, Xiaomi goes into India, into Malaysia, into many other countries, uh, particularly in Southeast Asia, to preview the end here. Xiaomi is now by far the number one smartphone brand in India, which is incredible. To my view, I I don't think this was normal at the time that a Chinese tech startup would be thinking, you know, because everybody's thinking the China market is so big. There are 1.3 billion people here. Why do we need to go outside our own borders? But Xiaomi and Hugo say... We are going to be a global brand. We are going to dominate all these other countries, even more so than U.S. counterparts or whomever.
3: How did that all come together? <laughs> well, I think, you know, Lin biden also from Google. So he knows yep. um, uh, Hugo Barra from before. And also there were mutual friends, in particular Robin Chen, who uh, helped to bridge that gap. And then a bunch of us have met uh, Hugo over the years. I first hosted... Hugo, and Robin, and and uh, JP, three folks, uh, to visit China in 2006, even before Hugo joined um, Google at that time. And then by, by the time that uh, Xiaomi tried to recruit Hugo, you already have a lot of investors in the company, including uh, DST, Yuria uh, DST, um, whom uh, Hugo knows quite well as well. So there's not enough people around the table that uh, Hugo already know and feel if he ever tried to do something that's different, Xiaomi probably is the one and mm. he also see the numbers of Xiaomi has, yeah. has has gone up. <laughs> so it's a combination of a lot of factors that made it possible for something like this to happen. It was unprecedented and it's not easy for someone who never lived in China to leave a current a great current job to do this. And as soon as he joined, I remember his Sina Weibo fans shot up. So Sina Weibo, well, you can think of it as a Twitter of China, but much bigger. On Twitter, he had probably uh, tens of thousands of fans. On, um, seen on Weibo within the first month of joining Xiaomi, he shot up to a, a million and more, so the impact that he was able to create in China was uh, much bigger than even what it was doing at Google Wow!
2: I think he really became the international face of Xiaomi yeah. and it became really like a celebrity in himself like people in China call him Hu ge, which means tiger brother which sounds like <laughs> his name, um, very endearing wow. and people see him as a, the face of the company that can be appreciated by people outside of China, and that was pretty important.
3: Right. And he also helped to recruit a lot of great people, young people in their early 30s or late 20s to join the company, including Manu, who runs uh, uh, Xiaomi India. And so a lot of people he recruited now that uh, manage and, and have, have done well within the Xiaomi and on their own have um, ended up making great, great contributions. So without Hugo joining, Xiaomi may not have been able to attract those people to join them. I think they do put a lot of emphasis on recruiting the right people to make things happen. And he, he's even planning ahead these days, trying to get younger people to do more. He, he's experienced enough that he always think ahead about what else he needs to continue to scale the business. So on the back of all this, End of 2014, Hugo's
1: now been in the seat for a year. They're getting moving into India in particular, but all, all these other countries. Xiaomi raises a billion dollars at a $45 billion valuation, becomes the most valuable startup in the entire world. Pretty amazing. After that, there's some hard years. Correct. <laughs> right. What about a year and a half. Yeah. It, it was not as easy for Xiaomi. And uh, we probably don't have time to cover in depth. But, I mean, basically this was – so now we're in 2015, 2016 – A couple things happen. One, globally, smartphones become a lot more commoditized. It had been such a huge growth market across the world for so long. But now Android's very established. It's Android, it's iOS. uh, And all the Android manufacturers are duking it out. And Xiaomi gets sucked into that. Also, though, e-commerce growth in particular in China plateaus itself. And so China growth, which had been incredible for the last few years, slows down a lot, even as all these other countries are coming online. That must have been (laughs) a real test of faith. And as we'll see, the company makes it through this period. But on the inside, you know, I mean, because I assume India especially was really, really growing at this point. Were you guys seeing the signs of hope that the company would get
3: through this? I think a couple of things uh, happened. One, Leijing, in addition to deciding to do Xiaomi Ecosystem, also decided to launch a phone called Redmi. That's not as popularized. Redmi costs less than $100. To users. It's a different brand than Xiaomi, but it's in the Xiaomi family of products. And it's very effective to beat competitors from who can potentially undercut them from below by going after the market themselves. That was a controversial decision. It wasn't clear that was the right answer uh, to do, but Leijing eventually took the guts and made that work. And that helped them with international expansion as well. The second thing that they did well, and it's, uh, it's not as obvious from outside as that. The um, Chinese e-commerce penetration rate back in 2014, 2015 is roughly close to uh, 10%, which is the e-commerce penetration rate in the US. So to penetrate even further as a percentage of uh, retail in China, it, it will need time to prove that it can continue to grow, which it did later. Yeah. But for a brief moment in time, people need to see whether this can be, could more people shop online in China than they are in the US, which invented e-commerce in the first place. And that took some effort to show that yes, indeed it will. And by that time, Xiaomi's phones have done so well in the market and have such a great market share, anybody who was willing to buy phones online at that point in time, have you heard already. of Xiaomi or bought yep. Xiaomi phone? Yep. Yep. So you wanna grow and get the other 90% of people who are used to buy stuff offline to also buy a phone, you can't just do it online anymore. And that was the lesson that they and the team eventually figured out and start experimenting the idea of doing an offline store to right. see if it makes sense. And um, they had a lot of Xiaomi stores that were fan stores. People come in and get the product fixed but can you turn that into a retail store and do it well, and end up figuring out a way to make that work? So in 2017, though things really turn around, the company
1: goes from flat revenue growth to 70 <laughs> percent revenue yeah. growth in one incredible, year. Uh, incredible, much on the back of India really working and and, and, and having offline stores in China and having open stores in China you and the ecosystem yes. finally coming along. That's now 22 percent of revenues. That's right. May of 2018, just recently, they announced they're going to file to go public. Estimated could raise up to $10 billion. In May, they announced that they file with
3: Hong Kong Stock Exchange. Yep. That's yep. right. Um more.
1: Originally, the idea was to do a CDR listing, even b- before the stock uh, Hong Kong Stock Exchange. Oh, simultaneous. Oh, all. simultaneous. Interesting. Yeah. They ended up pulling CDR and listing just on the Hong Kong Stock mm-hmm. Exchange. And David, what's CDR? Uh, China depository receipts. Uh, so it would have allowed the company to be traded on mainland China, uh, stock exchanges, but that was going to add a lot of complexity, (laughs) I would assume. Um, Yeah ends up pricing July 9th at 17 Hong Kong dollars per share yep. or a 53 billion dollar market cap so up a little bit from the last private round but not too much but then within the first week it gains another 20% closes at 21.45 at the end of the first week in a 61 billion dollar market cap and the net of all that is it's the biggest IPO, tech IPO in the world since Alibaba. Alibaba. <laughs> which in which right. is kind of amazing. Yeah.
3: Um, the team is, is amazing. It has a great board as well. And the collective have done a, a, a good job of rebounding from those uh, tough 18 months. And the offline store definitely is working out well. And it's pretty clear that strategy is exportable to other countries they're in. Xiaomi now is in 74 countries. And I remember when I first invest, started investing in China in 2005, the world had about a bit over a billion uh, internet users. And now the world has about 3.5 billion. The additional 2.5 billion ads, over one third came from uh, China. And that power China's uh, migration from a more or less a more industrial country to become something that's more a tech country because you have so many people on, online and then the rates are affordable. They spend so much time online, it's better to build business on top of that. So over the next 15 years, we are gonna see another 1.5 billion people get online. And most of them will be doing their smartphone. And most of them will be coming from countries that Xiaomi is in already. A lot of people ask me whether Xiaomi will come to the U.S. or not. They've been talking about it, but I don't think it's a priority for them. They should really go after the markets that they're in already and get the next 1.5 billion internet users. Right. There's so much more greenfield. Exactly. And uh, and not only are they doing that well, they also invest in companies who is providing localized services, internet services, that could be bundled into the phone. So they, they curate them and also invest in them. And so the traffic they can bring to these better localized solutions will be quite impressive. And we have seen a lot of Chinese internet companies got big over the last 10 years on smartphone. You you will see something of similar trajectory in these countries with startups, some of which will have their apps bundled into Xiaomi. So I think that's what a lot of people don't truly appreciate, the value of the Xiaomi uh, potential. And all they see is a smartphone, maybe smart TV. And you know, based on Android, is it really compatible with Android? But a lot of questions I hear from institutional investors are still quite at a basic level, which is completely understandable because it's not an easy story to understand. But over time, people will see that it isn't just a hardware company. It's very different. Whew, a lot. <laughs> that takes us to today.
0: Yes. You want to go into narratives? Let's do it. So what is Xiaomi today? And what is the company's business model? How is it being valued in the markets? I think one major thing that we have not talked about yet that is definitely the, the sort of buzz of the company is they have a $54 billion market cap the way that you could perceive them is like their business model is like Apple's. That's primarily around selling hardware. They kind of have this one hardware product, and they're starting to partner with all these other companies and have, you know, expensive retail stores to sell all those other ones. But the one hardware product they sell is at a very, very thin margin. It's not like Apple in that sense. So, sort and in of fact, the- Lei Jun
1: has recently announced that. Xiaomi will never make more than a 5% profit margin on any hardware
0: that it makes. <laughs> so they're, they're institutionally committing to that. After analyzing that a little bit and, and reading some good articles about it, it's a very nice press release that they're nowhere close to a 5% margin. So it's like, <laughs> well, okay, great. Like that sounds really charitable. <laughs> That would be the way to look at it that I think a lot of the people who are pulling their hair out and saying, this is so highly valued, that, that that's sort of their argument. I think when you look at the Xiaomi business model, that what they really are doing is they're selling phones at a relatively thin margin. They are selling all of these other things that they've they've basically pioneered this ecosystem strategy in order to really get people familiar with the brand, create a ton of brand trust, brand loyalty, make their stores a fun place to shop, build habit around, I go to Xiaomi and I buy things there and I buy nice things there and I buy expensive things that are important in my life. And I don't mean expensive, like they're not high, high dollar expensive. They're nice things at an appropriate price. And What they're really looking at from there is being able to kind of have a a services business model where their high margin revenue is really all from the same thing that Apple's beating the drum on, that people are buying iCloud and people are buying apps. And I think Xiaomi is really committed to it because they don't have a high margin business model elsewhere. It's really about kind of getting penetration with the hardware to have a very meaningful services revenue stream in people's lives that's the xiaomi narrative
1: you know as we've talked about throughout the episode <laughs> i think you know as, as also hans is, has referenced here you know at least in the western press and investor base there's also lots of questions of like you know on the opposite side that uh, hey this is a smartphone manufacturer <laughs> why is it uh, arguing it should be valued like a ecosystem company or an internet services company these multiples don't make any sense <laughs>
0: The, the jury is still out and we'll talk about it in grading, but there could be a fundamental misunderstanding of what this sort of newer business model is and how it should be valued. And there isn't necessarily a great U.S. comp. So, you know, I think that's the exciting thing about Xiaomi right now. Hans was just saying, yeah. So tech themes? Tech themes. Let's do it. Um, we talked a bunch about this, Chinese companies having global ambitions. The U.S. has always been a big enough market in itself and the the most lucrative market that U.S. companies tend to focus on the U.S. and then yeah, start to pay attention to emerging markets or China is too hard to enter, so we're not going to actually go there. I think... You know, what Xiaomi is doing from the start is that they're in the market everyone's talking about and they're already thinking international. And I think that that's a a unique bet. And as Hans was alluding to also that, you know, Xiaomi is, is, people ask them like, when are you going to come to the US?
1: That's not the relevant question. Why would we go
0: to the old market? Like that one's sort of taken and will be smaller at some point. So we'll focus on all these emerging markets and, you know, we'll be the future there. So, I mean, I think
1: my big tech theme and uh uh, this is why i'm so glad we have hans and zara with us you know i think we've kind of shown through the xiaomi story so far some of the things we talked about in the beginning of the episode about how there's so much innovation coming out of china right now and all the interesting things happening what i want to know from you guys is like what does that mean next like where are you guys looking you've invested in a number of companies Lime and Wish being great examples of of companies that are inherently cross-border, trying to take the best of the DNA of China tech and the best of the DNA of Silicon Valley and do something uniquely interesting with that, what is going to happen going forward?
3: Having the benefit of seeing how China internet space grew over the last 10-15 years, again, a lot of that is not Government-related. Yeah. The reason those companies are successful is not because of government support. Um, they just figure out a way to execute better and figure out a way to innovate uh, on top of the idea that's kind of funny, kind of interesting, but unproven. In our experience with Alibaba, made it a lot easier for us to want to take a bet on someone like Wish. And our experience with Hello Bike in China, uh, made it easier for us to want to take a bet with Lime. And our experience with DD made it easier to want to us to bet on Grab in Southeast Asia. What we're seeing is that anyone who has... Uh, should be wanting to have a desire to learn from multiple markets. Yeah. And our desire to learn and put our money to at risk to work in both the U.S. and China allow us to be able to take what we know, be helpful to startup teams or founders from other countries. And we love engaging funders from other countries who are equally curious about what we're saying.
2: I think awesome. it's really important to have an open mind just not to associate Chinese companies or products with particular preconceived notions but really see them as products like how are they yeah. engaging their users how are they being responsive and improving their products and just treating them equally as and learning from them It's
3: very easy to make someone a boogeyman <laughs> very easy to say we are where we are because someone else did that to us it is psychologically and logically very easy to gravitate towards that because that's the easy alternative to answer but in reality if if anyone who's willing to learn experiment and and execute there's just so many things tech internet could do and the all the inefficiencies in the offline world we have seen what has happened with media entertainment transportation retail the impact that tech and internet made more offline economies will be affected by internet tech. And you'd rather be on the winning side and be the one that, that helped to make changes possible and benefit from that rather than be left behind and, uh, and not be able to share the upside. Yeah, so many of these companies now are,
1: are cross-border, like are taking all these learnings from, from China and from Silicon Valley and yep. bringing them together.
0: So this is the part where David and I will take grading, and uh, while we're not as sort of harsh as we used to be, it's still definitely a little bit of a sort of paint the barren bull case. David, what will make this an A plus a few years from now, looking back on it, and you know what will make it? Let's just call it like a C minus, not great.
1: Yeah, thinking about how something could become an A plus, often you're like, man, what's the like? Uh, the analogy we always use of like you're driving towards a cliff, you pull the e-brake, you spin around, like in this case, it's almost like the ambitions are so large of Xiaomi already, like that they actually
0: come to fruition. That would be the
1: A plus. The ecosystem play, the services play, which is, you know, they're still building out the, you know, internationalization and dominating all these other countries. Um, you know, I think the A plus is, they do what they say they're going to do, right?
0: <laughs> yeah, I, I completely agree. I think it's they continue to be able to spot really great companies that they can bring into their ecosystem. They they invest early. They sell a ton of those those products, and they build out the the very material services revenue that I think is the most obvious uh, successful path for the company.
1: You know, and then C minus. Um there probably is existential risk in that like all of these things are capital intensive, right? So like an F is <laughs> the company doesn't have enough capital to operate.
0: Well, they did just raise $4.7 billion of it. so. You know, I think
1: that although as we saw with Tesla, <laughs> sometimes you can underestimate capital expenditure needs. You know, I think C-minus rate is, is probably like they do okay, but that they become, they don't have enough resources to fully execute on these plans and they become a... HTC, um, a Huawei, like, uh, again, super good companies, but phone manufacturers, right? Like Lei June and, and Xiaomi's ambitions are to be so much more than a phone manufacturer. Um,
0: Yeah, and they've had to pull back before. I mean, when they, uh, you know, when the supply chain couldn't keep up in 2015, 2016, and they had to retreat from Brazil and Indonesia, I I think, you know, they're a company that learns fast and adapts. And so I could see a world where if if they're sort of writing on the wall, they react very quickly and and are able to pull through it successfully, but not, you know, realizing the the grand ambitions that they had hoped. That's not my bet. But that's sort of what I think the C minus would be. Listeners, since we're running long, we're gonna gonna skip carve outs this time, um, and let Hans and Zara run, but we'll be back with carve outs next episode. <laughs>
1: we'll get to next time. Thank you. You guys want to sign off. <laughs> and where, uh, where where can our listeners find you guys and, and interact with with you, with 996, with GGV?
2: Sure. If you Google the numbers 996 in any podcasting app, you will find us. We're on all platforms, including the Chinese ones like Himalaya FM. And we also have a listeners community. Um, it's over a thousand people strong. That's both on WeChat groups and Slack channels. So you can join that at 996.ggvc.com slash community. And we also organize offline meetups for our listeners around the world.
3: We're not a podcast that's telling everyone that China's better. That's not the purpose of the podcast at all. We firmly believe that anybody that's more open-minded and willing to learn and share what they're seeing around the world will eventually become better for it. And this is why we love tech. We love the internet. We know the problems that can cause. And we also want to figure out how to learn from that and have technology and the internet to make a positive contribution in society. I think it's very easy to get lost about the, the cool things that any one of us working on and lose sight of the impact on society. But we also want to make sure that the internet and tech is accessible to a lot of people and people gotta uh, kind of have the desire to want to embrace that. We saw how China changed in the last 10, 15 years. And a lot of people were lifted out of poverty because of of the positive contribution a lot of internet companies made. They're not perfect; they have rooms for improvement. But the potential for positive change definitely outweighs the risk and the, the shortcomings. So. We want to have a podcast that promotes uh, openness and promotes idea sharing. And we feel that anybody who is willing to do that, would, uh, we all gain from that. And we ourselves are gaining and learning from the people we feature on our podcast as well. And then we enjoy being here. I have a chance to interact with you two. You guys ask great questions. <laughs> uh, thanks.
0: Awesome. Well, thanks, Han Zara. Really appreciate you coming on the show. Listeners, if you want to learn more, uh, acquire.fm and go to, I think it's 996.ggvc.com. And thanks to SVB for being our sponsor. All right. See you next time. Thanks, gentlemen. See you next time.
2: Thank you.